You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. You're all very welcome back to the room after lunch. Uh, my name is Elaine Calvin and I was a PhD student uh, under the supervision of uh, the great Professor Fitzpatrick. Um, and I have to say that uh, it was a huge learning experience for me and uh, a very, very pleasurable four years working underneath this supervision. Today I'm going to introduce three panellists um, that are going to uh, present some very interesting papers. First up is going to be Dr. Anne Dolan. And Anne Dolan is a professor in modern Irish history here in Trinity College, Dublin. And her research examines the nature and legacy of the Irish Civil War and the social and cultural history of interwar Ireland. Her publications include Commemorating the Irish Civil War, History and Memory 1923-2000, and a forthcoming study of Michael Collins, which is co-written with William Murphy of Dublin City University. So, Anne, um, thanks, Dave. Great. Um, again, thanks to Fanula and thanks to, to Kieran Wallace, who I know is, is not here. Um, Given the day that's in it, I should start in Clare, but we're off to Leitrim instead. Oliver Harrison was 14, maybe 15 years old, when he found his father's body in a field just 400 yards from their home. Later the same day, in April 1921, he formally identified his father for the military court, told of the knocking at the door, that he had stayed quiet in his bed even when he heard men shout. He told of the time it took to put his clothes on. Have he watched a stranger take his father? Have he went over an hour later to see where his father had gone? He swore there were no shots, no sounds, and there was nothing of the faces he saw that he could remember again. He signed his short statement with the awkward, joined-up writing of a child's unpracticed hand, and he went home, a makeshift man of the house now, for the 11 other Harrison children who lost their father that day. Oliver Harrison's mother recounted the vigil she had kept that same night with two sick children, nursing them at the fire into the early hours of the morning, had the knocking started and then the windows broke. She too had no memory of faces, had heard no sounds, and assumed that because there were no shots that her husband was coming back, because in April 1921 gunshot was what death was supposed to sound like. Someone brought John Harrison's body back and laid him on a cart in the outhouse, carried him the 400 yards or so along the road, but neither wife nor son mentioned who had undertaken that bloody task. Neither wife nor son mentioned why this death was worthy of attention when the findings of the inquiry made their way from Drumriley County Leitrim to Dublin. Dublin was struck by what it called the brutal nature of the crime, and it was in the very quality of its brutality that Dublin measured its worth. If it is properly written up, it would make good propaganda, because there was something in the nature of the violence that could unsettle readers who may have grown accustomed by April 1921 to the familiar news of shots and shooting and bullet wounds. Dublin saw something here to make even the more jaundiced reader sit up at their breakfast table from their tea and toast. Neither wife or son put words to what now lay dead like some broken animal in the outhouse beside their home. The local doctor, Charles Dolan, did that. He found, as he put it, an open gaping wound from the top of the skull to the base through which could be distinctly seen almost the entire formation of the brain. Around the wound, portions of brain substance and pieces of bone were protruding. This wound, in my opinion, was caused by some heavy, sharp instrument. On turning the body over, I found the left eye hanging out and resting on the cheek. A number of bones in the temple and facial regions were broken. I attribute this to a blow from behind with this instrument. 
There was also a large open wound on, wound on the left side under the ninth rib, a lacerated spleen and left kidney and stomach but no exit wound and on and on he went. Dolan was a doctor in a small place, used no doubt to small, probably ordinary death, familiar with the illnesses and accidents that brought the dead of Drumreilly and its nearby townlands to far less bloody ends than this. His evidence was recorded sparely. He described the thing before him, the flesh, the wounds, making no suggestion as to what that sharp, heavy instrument might be, whether shovel or spade or slash hook or loy. He spoke of the mess of violence, of the slashed and disfigured body, that after all the months of inquiries and killings gave Dublin Castle pause for thought. In the Bureau of Military History statements, Harrison's death merited, so far as I can see, one remark. That he was shot because he was a spy, although the witness was quick to confirm, I do not know the details, before passing swiftly on to something else. But whether Harrison spied or not makes no odds. I don't want him here for that. Nor is he here to prove the perfidy of the IRA. I could have started just as readily with the broken body of Cape Marin, Dundrum, County Tipperary, possibly raped many times, used up and left for dead, certainly, by a group of British soldiers on a patch of waste ground. I could have started with their violence, or with the violence of disapproval done to her by the people she lived among, who remarked that she had a child but no husband, who dismissed her as a woman who liked to drink with men. It is not about one-upmanship or trying to take a side. Nationalist, revisionist, post-revisionist, be damned. I want to tackle a quandary bigger than that. We have, for all sorts of reasons and from all sorts of perspectives, as Peter Hart said, one of the best documented revolutions a modern historian will have the fortune to find. We can get lost in the minutiae of violence, whether in Leitrim, Tipperary or anywhere else, and wallow, if we wish, in the type of detail we can find. We've become excellent practitioners of local history, maybe even micro-history of a sort, but what, for all that detail, have we found? What have we to offer? What are the wider questions we have posed? The methodological advances we have made for historians of violence outside this period and this place, and I'm not sure I know. Looking in from the outside, taking a rather rudimentary survey of the reflections in recent, in recent years on the state of our field, readers of international journals who may or may not have a passing interest in Irish history will have found articles by, amongst others, Stephen Howe, Ian McBride, many of them by John Regan, in places like the History Workshop Journal, the Historical Journal, and History, where David himself, I think, was prompted or maybe even provoked to respond, all discussing the state of scholarship on the Irish Revolution. Readers will find considerable concern about what may or may not have happened in Don Manway in April 1922, or conclude that all roads inevitably lead back to Cork. But will they have been treated to anything more than a ringside seat at a very local row? Will they rush to wider works on Ireland's revolutionary history to diversify their own approach? That does not reflect necessarily on these articles in their own right. Rather, they are exposing, I think, something broader, a problem which does not do justice to the richness of the material that we have got. We might ask, where is our Natalie Zeman Davis, our Mark Greengrass, our James Scott, our Status Calibas? Where are, whatever you think of them, our rights of violence, our logic of collective violence, our weapons of the weak? I went back to politics and Irish life to the 1977 edition, thanks to the preface David wrote two decades later, and to his essay on the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, published last year, each rather symmetrically 20 years apart, and there is something of a thread, a thread that has become more evident as that time has passed. In 1977, readers read of what he calls the military futility of the revolution, how deaths were comparatively sparse. By 1977, he notes 
The few subsequent attempts to explore local and everyday experience in the revolutionary period since politics and Irish life. By 2017, it seems, well, just a bit more blunt than 20 years before. Having sketched out the inadequacy of the various titles that have been given to our period, David writes, all of these terms, in my view, place undue emphasis on violence as against political struggle, internal and international propaganda, popular protests, and collective actions and revolutionary state building. And more comes just a few lines on. I think Fergal may have quoted some of these lines already. Reflecting on the county studies of the 40 years since 1977, he concludes as follows. Most of these have given priority to violence, and even those that embrace the political or administrative revolutions have paid scant attention to the social and economic origins and consequences of revolutionary activity. David laments, or at least I think he does, he might tell us otherwise later, that holistic and anthropological studies on the Annal model, once widely regarded as the key to unlocking connections between political, economic, social and cultural structures, left revolutionary Ireland virtually untouched after the 1970s. The proliferation of localised study, studies, however skillful and illuminating in themselves, has yielded no general pattern beyond the infinite variety of revolutionary activity, the importance of local peculiarities, and the inability of central institutions and leaders to control provincial behaviour. Amen, I think we might say, to that. So why am I hauling out the Harrisons, hawking around the words of Dr Dolan from Drum Riley in light of all that? While David has been making a plea for perspective when it comes to violence and the revolution for over 40 years, now here I come with just blood and bones and brains and misery for all that, almost in defence of violence, if you like. Don't worry, I've been rebuked for this before. In a review of Terror in Ireland, which David edited, John Regan noted a tendency on my part to what he calls victimology, that I allowed the victims' harrowing experiences become an end in themselves. He reminded readers that, as he put it, human misery, while appalling, also happens to be mesmerising. This is why Madame Defarge, he writes, daily watches the spectacle of the guillotine while doing her knitting in Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. While if Regan had read his Dickens a little better, he may have noticed that she watched and she knitted for much more complex reasons than that. My point has never been to harrow or to appall or to mesmerise. I suppose it's to see what can be done with violence when violence is to be found in the type of detail that we have. Detail that might actually allow us to contribute something to the broader discipline beyond simply knowing or disagreeing about who shot who. If we are going to consider the role of violence in the Irish Revolution, then don't we have to look at it square in the face? and consider some of the questions raised, however uncomfortable our gaze. The most obvious ones are both the most basic and the most abstract. What is the place of violence in a history of violence? How much do we need or want to know, as opposed to what the proliferation of records can let us find out? The broken body of John Harrison tells us much about the dynamics of revolution in a small place in Leitrim in 1921. There is, a there is the message of that body left in that way, it is maybe part of why so few died in that and so many other places. It tells us about the violence of the poorly armed, the type of violence that meant a closed coffin, the type of violence meant to mark John Harrison out. And what of Oliver Harrison? What of John Harrison's wife? Do they in turn shape our response to this kind of violence? Should they even play a part in our consideration? Does the presence of a wife or a child at a killing or in this sort of evidence alter our reaction to it? <coughs> Or our own sense, uh, or our sense of why it was done, or even of how we conceive or consider the methods of fighting a certain kind of war. Does an eight-year-old girl trying to talk to her dead brother after watching him die change what is, after all, just another casualty in just another war? Does it matter that she was standing on the road in her shift, 
nearly naked and wild cold as she put it herself, that she was also shot in the arm and that the same night her father died. Does John McSweeney's death change because soldiers shot him in front of his younger brother, that the soldiers sent the eight-year-old boy home with the sugar and the bread soda their mother had sent both boys to the creamery for? Do they take us to an inherently moral position where we default to judgment, where every death becomes a tragic calamity? Does Annie Waters change our certainty or even temper our curiosity about what Patrick and John Waters maybe did or did not do to Annie or either side as she traipsed just yards behind her two sons, behind the men who had taken them in the middle of a June night? If only hear and see is a mother watching her sons die, hearing the shots fired into their bodies, identifying their remains, confirming their ages, 19, 21, both were single, is it easier to actually let these kinds of voices fade away and stay with the politics of whose sides the Waters boys may have been on? How does it help us to know that every traitor or turncoat hero or martyr for whatever cause is mourned or lost by father, mother, brother, son or wife? Do all the many Annie Waters turn our, any possible history of all of this into a kind of maudlin melodrama? Do they just appeal to the heart and not to the mind as some fear? Are we back to Regan's victimology? Or do they actually ask us harder questions as historians about the place emotion should play in the history of violence as Graham Murdoch and Andrew Spicer have asked? Or by her very presence, do we actually see what sets some of this conflict apart? What calibrated the kind of moral register at the time that questioned whether killing in front of mothers and fathers and daughters and sons was playing by anybody's rules of war? Contemporaries questioned the propriety of time and place, the disgust at killing in broad daylight, equally the horrors of death alone in the middle of the night. They pointed to the bodies left like animals on the public road, and many of them used that phrase, and the publicness seemed to be the grave offence. They measured their own sense of indignities and horrors very clearly for us to find, and there's something worth finding in their register, even if we demur or keep from applying any register of our own. David quite rightly suggested that we need to consider the dynamics of violence rather than its morality, but contemporary morality was part of how that dynamic of violence worked. The when, where and how that matters, the body left, buried, hidden, the labels left to be found and read for what you were meant to think it was, Frank Sullivan's sister tore up the label left on his body, casting it from her as much as from her dead brother. John Macaulay's wife tore up the piece of card pinned to her husband's sleeve. If it was never found, it never was, and neither she, he, or their daughter had, the, had to bear its mark. We can see exactly the type of sense made of it, the messages in it, and why so few died for such measure, messages to hit home. Place matters. It means who saw, who watched, and who found. There's town violence, quick, manic, a chance taken, and then how to get away. And then there's the time of smaller places, the moved, the marched away, the hidden or the left. There's the sudden violence of opportunity at any time of the day or night. There are the many who die on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday night, when there's time, when more men free of the week's work can get away, when there's maybe money for Dutch courage at the end of the week. But even in the thick of all that seems to go against David's instincts for a more rounded sense of the social, the cultural, the economic, they are there to be found if we hunt. In many different records, whether at the time or in compensation files after, we are told of homes, work, families, communities, the few streets or byroads that mark out the orbit of a life lived, albeit in the hours or days before a death. They tell of occupations, fights, feuds, relationships, the son not seen for more than a year, the father who refused to come to the inquiry because, as he put it, he'd simply got enough of it, a son who would no longer obey him, long gone on the run. 
They tell what contemporaries wanted the dead to be and what they believed them to be. And sometimes in the gap between the two, a farmer became a labourer, a domestic servant became a char. We find a web of snobberies. The Hours is a very quiet neighbourhood. We never see military and very seldom any police around here, even though it was Cork City and it was February 1921. That was something that happened to the riffraff in other parts. The unknown man, summed up by one witness as looking like a tramp labourer or ex-soldier, allows us to see what little sympathy there was for those on the margins of that particular place and how easy it may have been to find yourself there. They tell us something in how they even sign their names, in the Molly who signed herself as Mary, in the laboured or practised efforts to join the letters of the name, in the baldness of an ex in a signature stead. They tell us some of who they were, some of the world violence interrupted, some of what they and the dead belonged to. Indeed, we find the dead far beyond the classifications we hope to fit them into, and they highlight perhaps how readily I think we've settled for such limited and convenient categories since. They tell us a lot about fears and hatreds, about the cost of conflict from a whole variety of sides, even down to the cost of losing a labouring son to a farm, family farm, measured out baldly in shillings and pence. One man even put a, his 10-year-old son, effectively at the, he put a, a cost of £248, 14 shillings and sixpence as his loss. They shape a sense of a life suddenly stopped with quite assiduous listings of pockets full of pathetic possessions that many may never have thought of carrying to their deaths, but, shaped our sen- but shape our sense of who the dead might have been beyond those terms spy or soldier or combatant or civilian or all our other terms. Patrick Feeney's half pound of cheese, a man with a toothbrush, rosary beads, six packets of cigarettes, a clean and tidy organised sort, a musical man with a violin, an unlucky type with a purse with no money in it, a ragged man with underpants with Welsh regiments stitched in and a ten shilling note hidden in his stock. A razor, trimming scissors, the accoutrements of a neat and tidy fellow. A watch, a knife, a packet of players, the Irish independent and a tooth. The mix and gatherum of maybe a less fastidious youth. Letters to a Miss Angelina Schultz who the inquest discovered was really the far less exotically named Pauline Desmond. <laughs> One man had bad teeth and two tattoos, Ireland forever and HMS victory. Together inked on one body the very complexity of Irish life in March 1921. False teeth, three days beard, the shirts and vests of various quality and wear, the soiled jackets sent solemnly home, the things left behind, sometimes the only things left to identify, such as a gold tooth and a hat with fishing flies, the shape of a hand and a nose that altogether made out District Inspector Potter to his wife four months after his death. Eight pence only in a pocket, said a man died on the way to, not from, the labour exchange. In the mundane possessions we have something of the world violence functioned in, the ease or the hardship of new or old and second-hand, the chores and the remnants of the life lived, testament to what was useful or meaningful or just plain cumbersome on that day of death. Violence yields us names, ages, occupations, but more, the practical things that go far beyond competent civilian soldier spy. We get spouse, parent, sibling, some variant of a next of kin, confirmed what Richard Cobb found of the age 1790s, that a retired laundry woman, as he put it, is identified by her laundryman's son, a carpenter by his carpenter father who lives in the same street a few doors down. Addresses, occupations reveal who moved and stayed, how far they went, if brothers still lived together into their 50s, 70s, 80s, if a wife ever came into this kind of home. They tell of marriages and children, how many sons, daughters, even in some cases, how many cows? A matter of fact, mother-in-law identified James Riley with a pointed economy of words. 
At 14, John O'Connell identified the body of his father, spoke in detail of both their lives, lives of labour and work and cutting turf together on another man's bog. My son was not married to my knowledge, suggested Jeremiah and Michael O'Sullivan led far more distant lives. John Patterson admitted, as he put it, that he disapproved of my wife visiting 24 Summerhill Parade. Summerhill Parade was a tenement and as a solicitor's assistant he was going places in the law department of the Great Northern Railway, too fast to have a wife harking back to such a life. Whatever they tell of the dynamics of revolutionary violence, they may well tell us more of the dynamics of everyday life. Even some of the violence itself, or at least the conditions it occurred in, should remind us of that. Circumstances sometimes testify to the extent to which life went stubbornly, gloriously on, even at times or in places where we are told the war was at its height. Tense parties in Galway in May 1921, RIC men out alone, unarmed, fishing in Cork in the same month, the policemen out to buy cigarettes, the need to smoke overpowering all the warnings, hit with 14 gunshot wounds in Sligo in June. The violence allows us, if we wish it to, to see something of the life. It's in the coming together of what we can know, with how contained violence was here, that gives us something broader, I think, to say. We can perhaps practice the type of micro-history other conflicts, because of their sheer scale, may never achieve, suggest the makings of a rights of violence that amounts to more than who spied and who didn't, that amounts to more than the pointless pursuit of motivations that we may never define. Our massacres, if we should even call them that, or use that term, are measured in remarkably small numbers, and we should not lose sight of that. But there is, I think, something in the quality of the violence here that helps explain why. We can look to Greece, Silesia, Egypt, Germany, Armenia, Mexico for other contemporary comparisons. We can find in Finland, as Bill Kazan and others have, a stark comparison for our experience of civil war. 36,000 dead there in less than six months. The murder rates that soar there in the interwar years. Peter Hart set out ten questions we might ask towards a new revolutionary history. One was, why was the Irish Revolution so violent? I would suggest changing his so to not more. Harrison's death, like many of the others, partly because of all the brutal detail we can find, gives us a glimpse of what might have been as much as what was. Be challenged by comparison, not because it reduces the Irish case to some sort of revolution we also ran, but rather by what comparison can do to the material that we have. Be challenged by what we might do with all the Oliver Harrisons of all and none on any side, to whom the many dead of Silesia and Egypt and Armenia made, perhaps in the midst of their own tragedies, probably no odds at all. I accept it is a slightly paradoxical position, if paradoxes can ever be slight, wanting more of violence to suggest that there was less of it here. I would be the first to champion a history of indifference, and might try it after I finish this one, <laughs> to write the perspective of the everyday back into our overplaying of the revolution's hand. But given our seeming obsession with violence, where can our understanding of it go? What use can we make of it? Questions can we ask of it to turn it into something more than the sum of our hoary old fights? In the preface of Politics and Irish Life, David referred, as he put it, to an obstinate determination to write history about plain people. The history of the revolution, and particularly of its violence, needs little encouragement to be stubborn, tenacious, pig-headed or mulish, but it could certainly bear more obstinacy of David's strikes. He lectures in the Department of History at Mary Magdalene College Limerick, having previously taught at the University of Exeter 
and he held a postdoctoral fellowship at Maynooth University and here at Trinity College Dublin, where he was awarded a PhD in 2014. His most recent publications include Defying the IRA, Intimidation, Coercion and Communities during the Irish Revolution, and with Fergus Robson, uh, Unconventional Warfare from Antiquity to the Present Day. So I give you Brian Hughes. Thanks. Uh, I'd just like to maybe start as well by um, thanking Kieran and Fnula as well for the invitation, and also uh, to thank David, who was uh, an inspirational and very generous internal examiner and then a mentor while I was a postdoctoral fellow here. Um, and sort of having to follow on has reminded me of 2011 when David very kindly allowed me to speak at the Terror in Ireland uh, Trinity History Workshop. And I was very much the most junior speaker uh, and felt very much out of my, my depth. So I've kind of come full circle here again. Same podium, <laughs> uh, same feeling of inadequacy. And talking about something that I, I still don't fully understand yet. But... Uh, I survived the last time, so hopefully I'll, I'll get through this as well. Um, and what I want to talk about is this so-called uh, Protestant uh, exodus. Um, that, that the non-Catholic population of the 26 counties that became the Irish Free State dropped by about a third between 1911 and 1926, and continued to fall thereafter is uncontested, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but the timing and nature of that decline is not... Uh, and David's forensic analysis of West Cork Methodists is one of the most recent and important attempts to explain that demographic change. Um, but relatively little has yet been written on the immediate experiences of Southern Protestants and Loyalists who left uh, what I'll tentatively call Southern Ireland uh, in the decade after 1920, where they went and what they did when they got there. Uh, and this is something that David has touched on, I think, very fruitfully um, in, in descendancy. Uh, moreover, the focus on trends of Protestant migration ignores significant numbers of Catholics who might also fit a broader, though perhaps additionally complex, category of loyalist ex-soldiers, ex-policemen, uh, their families and, and others. Uh, the focus in this paper, though, is, is not on the numbers, uh, perhaps not even on the facts, but, but what it was believed or what interested parties would have liked us to believe about Protestant migration in this period. Individual motivations are, as, as David has put it in a slightly different context, notoriously resistant to historical uh, analysis. So this paper will instead, kind of briefly and very tentatively, discuss some of the ways in which an exodus, whatever that might actually mean, was presented in government, in the press and by contemporaries, but looking outside of the Irish Free State um, in rather than the, the other way around. Uh, and the aim is to maybe go some way towards understanding how this migration was perceived in its destination rather than in its origins. Now in Britain, uh, the summer of 1922 appears as a peak of a perceived influx of Southern Irish loyalist refugees, and this is how they're repeatedly described. Uh, in May 1922, the British government was sufficiently concerned to set up an Irish Distress Committee, which later became the first Irish Grants Committee, with an initial budget of £10,000, which they spent very quickly. Um, and its job was to investigate applications by or on behalf of persons ordinarily resident in Ireland who, for reasons of personal safety, have come to Great Britain and are represented to be in urgent need of assistance. Uh, they also sought to compile information to allow the Irish office to make detailed representations to the provisional government to secure their return to their homes at the earliest popular moments. Now, I don't think they actually did very much in, in that particular regard. Uh, and whether or not this is anything like a refugee crisis, particularly in, in a European context, uh, it may well have felt like one to those who were reading about it in the papers, uh, and even more so to those who queued for relief 
at the committee's inadequately resourced offices, uh, and not least those who were turned away. Uh, and in the private sphere at the same time, uh, a meeting of interested parties in London was tasked with founding an organisation for the relief of distress amongst the Southern Irish Loyalists. The Southern Irish Loyalists Relief Association, or SILRA, was born at a meeting in early June 1922, and it appointed an executive committee with Scottish Unionist politician Victor Hoper, the second Marcus of Linlithgow, as its chairman. Uh, by July, SILRA had absorbed a number of small and ex smaller existing organisations, including the Southern Irish Loyalist Defence Fund, the RIC Relief Committee, and the Irish Registration Bureau. In fact, there are all these small organisations existing, I think, in its own right, maybe tells us something. Uh, in March 1923, Alan Ian Percy, the 8th Duke of Northumberland, uh, a reactionary, diehard conservative, a fiery orator and propagandist, became the association's chairman and its driving force. Uh, and Sailor, which survived, surprisingly enough, until the early 1960s, uh, held public meetings, fundraising bazaars, open houses and clothing drives across Britain. While it might be unfair to completely dismiss any genuine philanthropic motives, the work of private lobby groups like SILRA can't be dis disentangled from the politics of its members, however hard they might have tried to do so. And even then, there's little sense that they actually tried all that hard at all. Uh, but for now, it's maybe just worth noting that this desire of these individuals to respond privately, they're, they're often involved in public life, but they are essentially responding voluntarily and privately to what they may have seen as a genuine crisis, if again a relatively small one in the European context, uh, or as a propaganda opportunity too good uh, to miss, or perhaps uh, as a combination of the two. And at the same time as the Irish Distress Committee and Silver were founded, the Ulster Unionist Council formed its own refugee committee, uh, chaired by the Armagh Unionist MP Sir William Allen and based in the old town hall in Belfast. And it similarly raised and distributed uh, pecuniary relief to what were described as urgent temporary cases. While committees of three were supposed to be founded in smaller towns and tasked with providing their own relief. Uh, and for its part, the Ulster Women's Unionist Council offered representatives to meet and look after refugees, uh, as they put it, arriving at northern railway stations. And on 21st of June 1922, Government Secretary Wilfred Spender was told that the question of how these southern refugees are to be dealt with is now becoming urgent. Apparently prompted by what was described as the serious aggravation of the refugee problem, Prime Minister James Craig had written to Winston Churchill, then Colonial Secretary, for advice. Hundreds of these poor people are being driven across the border into our territory, he wrote, and we have no means of supporting them officially. Um, and this kind of discussion carried on, but really internally it seems that the preference remained for uh, the private refugee committee and other organisations like it to look after the needs of these refugees, even if it was acknowledged that this couldn't carry on for forever. Uh, and this was at least partly because the Northern Government were worried that any attempt to push the British to cover the cost while they waited to be reimbursed by the Free State would prompt a similar bill for what were described as so-called Catholic refugees from the North. So they're sort of afraid that if they push this too hard, they'll get their own uh, bill in return. And these kind of inter- and intra-government debates continue into the 1920s uh, about who should foot the bill for various groups of uprooted minorities. Southern Irish loyalists in Britain and Northern Ireland, Irish deportees from Britain, the Northern Catholics in Dublin and elsewhere in the Free State. Um, public relations agendas, for want of a better phrase, were never far from these kind of discussions. 
The Free State Administration didn't deny that some people have been forced to leave its jurisdiction after their homes were burned, but did not necessarily accept, or certainly some of its civil servants didn't necessarily accept, that leaving alone was enough to justify compensation. Dermot O'Hegarty had told Lionel Curtis in May 1922 of an organised movement in both countries which has for its purpose and political objective the discrediting of the provisional government in Ireland and of His Majesty's government in Great Britain. It was common knowledge, he suggested, that a considerable number have left on a plea of compulsion without any justification whatever for that plea. And by April 1922, Joseph Brennan, Secretary of the Department of Finance, was suggesting that those who had, whose homes had been burned would be compensated in due course, but it was safe for others to return. Uh, Travers Blackley, a former agent on the Farnham Estate, Justice of the Peace, under Sheriff and prominent Orangeman and Unionist, was one of those being told that he could come home, yeah. having fled Cavan after a shootout with Raiders in April 1922. The provisional government, unable to offer any protection, had initially advised Blackie to leave in April 22, but 15 months later, the Free State authorities had stopped paying his under-sheriff's salary on the basis that there was then no reason for him not to return to his work. Mr Blackie, was said, naturally took a different view of the situation and remained in London. Uh, he tried to secure a government position in Belfast, um, but was unsuccessful. And by 1926, he was still in London, earning what he described as a precarious living by selling on commission. Uh, and this is perhaps an extreme case, especially in, in a cabin context, but it's one that highlights the potential discrepancy between official pronouncements and local uh, or individual knowledge, perception and assumption. Blackley may well have been safe to return to Cavan, uh, a quiet county by most standard measures of violence. But what is important here is that he seemed to have fairly sincerely felt that he was not safe to return. And even if there was no systematic coordinated campaign of violence, arson or intimidation targeted directly against Protestants, it was surely possible for some Protestants to believe, even incorrectly, that there was. Those on the ground relied on what they saw, heard, or read, whether or not it was necessarily in, uh, whether or not it was necessarily accurate. And a decision to return to Ireland was potentially informed in the same way. The Cork Examiner's report of the exodus following uh, the killings in Bannon Valley quickly framed as a temporary withdrawal until peaceful conditions had resumed. And as David has found amongst a sample of Methodists, most either resisted the pressure to leave home or subsequently returned, including the wife of one of the victims. The Protestants of Cavan might well have felt removed enough from depictions of a massacre of Irish Protestants uh, or Protestants living in a state of most abject terror because of the shooting of members of their creed, as it was proclaimed uh, in a pamphlet printed by the Belfast newsletter uh, following the, the Bandon Valley killings. Yet someone like Blackley, uh, either way, remained away from home. And even this brief comparison suggests that more needs to be done to understand the experience and perception of Protestant migration in this period, uh, in all of its complexity. The, the pamphlet, which again is produced, um, probably not really for a, an Irish Free State audience or a provisional, uh, you know, 26 county audience, uh, also suggests that it's worth thinking about how events in Ireland were portrayed to an audience outside the Free State, including Southern Loyalists who might have arrived in Britain and Northern Ireland by this stage. And what's again important to note is not whether or not this is accurate, but the message that it sends or that it, it, it aims to send. Uh, and the Irish Unionist Alliance's notes, notes from Ireland, for instance, regularly contained a two-page spread on life in the Irish Free State. 
which was essentially a list of shootings, raids, robberies, arson, poisoning of animals, damaged property, threats, kidnappings, um, which it described as typical of the many incidents affecting the civil population taken from the southern press. Uh, you can just see this is just one example from November 23, so it's two full pages of, of this kind of thing. Uh, and individually, as they were originally reported, most of these incidents were meant, meant to very little except to their victims. But as a quarterly catalogue for readers abroad, they perhaps take on a very different and more sinister appearance. And as I said, this reporting is not necessarily aimed at an Irish or even an Irish-born audience. And it had a clear political agenda in a specifically British context. It may have served to reinforce some emigrants' notions of why they left, and certainly some of the articles that appear in, in, in uh, Notes from Ireland would suggest um, that that was one of the aims. But if it served to convince Britons, or indeed Americans, Canadians, or Australians of a certain political persuasion that the cowardly loss of 26 Irish counties and the breakup of the Union had resulted in tyr tyranny, anarchy, and loyalist persecution, then it might be said to have achieved its function, again, regardless of, of whether this may or may not have been the case. And this so-called plight of Irish loyalist refugees also received coverage in the right-wing national press in Britain uh, and in some local newspapers as well, for much the same uh, reasons. This is just an example of some letters to the editor of the Daily Mail in October 1923. Uh, the pseudonyms are a sufferer and a homeless British loyalist, and they're very common of the kind of pseudonyms that, that these people took on. Uh, and Silra was often a driver of this, this coverage, uh, and as association and others will have, have their audiences believe it, Irish loyalists in Britain were unhappy, ruined, destitute, their lives destroyed through no fault of their own, save their loyalty to Britain, betrayed and abandoned by the government settlement over the Anglo-Irish Treaty. This kind of rhetoric um, is neatly summarised in comments from the Belfast newsletter's lady correspondent in London, and the newsletter regularly reprinted material from the Morning Post and the Daily Mail on this subject. Um, and she wrote, um, it's difficult to persuade the majority of the people over here uh, in London that refugees are arriving every day from Southern Ireland, some of them of the well-born and well-educated class, in just the clothes they stand up in. They have been either burned or forcibly turned out of comfortable and well-beloved homes for no crime, save that of devotion and loyalty to our king and country. Here we have appeal after appeal for Turks, Greeks, Armenians, Chileans and sufferers in Russia and other countries these refugees are our own people, victims of our, our foreign government. So it's not just nationalists that are drawing comparisons with what's going on elsewhere. Uh, Irish refugees themselves, usually anonymous, were also wheeled out to address British audiences at fundraising meetings and their accounts reproduced in the press. The truth about Ireland League, supported by the formidable former police commissioner for Munster, Cyril Prescott DC, and Lady Bathurst, the owner of the Morning Post, took this even further. They had meetings addressed by what were described as Irish martyrs, sometimes dressed in deep black. It's unusual that a martyr gets to address you uh, <laughs> face to face, but this is the case here. Um, and one meeting was held for women only, as, the, as decency forbids the terrible truth being told before a mixed audience. And this is the kind of atmosphere that they're trying to create. Um, and again, they're on, on the kind of perhaps even extreme wing of, of this. Um, and in the report of Sir Henry Wilson's funeral, the Belfast newsletter referred to some 20 refugees from Southern Ireland for whom accommodation had been given at the special request of Lady Wilson. They had been apparently anxious to pay their last respects to their dead leader. Uh, Wilson, I suppose, was in a sense a Southern 
uh, loyalist. Uh, he'd also been present at the inaugural meeting of, of Silver, which took place less than, a, less than a month before he was killed. Um, now, the Times was a little bit less kind in referring to a pathetic group of loyalist refugees from the southern and western counties of Ireland. The pathetic, though, to be, you know, in, in context of rousing sympathy um, rather than anything else. Uh, and when Silver publicly announced ex- its existence in July 1922, it was described or described itself as a non sectarian organisation and continued to insist unconvincingly that it was non party and non sectarian. Uh, it was, in fairness to it, less inclined to utilise the explicit rhetoric of Protestant massacre found in the, the Belfast newsletter pamphlet, um, though it didn't necessarily avoid the phrase completely. Instead, the association usually stuck to a broader, more flexible, but no less damning narrative of Southern loyalists, including Catholic ex-policemen and ex-servicemen, who were cruelly portrayed by Lloyd George's coalition government and forced to flee from persecution in the 26 counties. Um, and they tend not to be so critical of the free state itself, or explicitly critical uh, of the free state. It tends to be the, the, the government that they've an issue with. And this is, so this exodus rhetoric, uh, however it was framed, was clearly seen to have some capital in the British context. Uh, and the widespread and politicised use of the words refugee and exile to describe loyalists from Southern Ireland arriving in mainland Britain, um, as well as those who crossed the border into Northern Ireland, is in its own way revealing. It has been suggested that not without reason the large Protestant landowning elites and the professional middle classes were assimilated into British society much more easily than their Catholic counterparts. Um, it might be assumed that for those loyal to the Union, regardless of the reasons they left, this was not movement to a foreign country, but one which they had a natural affinity, often having spent significant, amount, uh, significant amounts of time there at school, working or with family. Certainly to Silra and its supporters, these were our own people, British citizens, fellow subjects, kith and kin. Um, but again, this doesn't really do justice to the complexity of, of identity. Uh, and Mal Malden is right to point out that the wave of Anglo-Irish refugees after the war has rarely been characterised as immigration at all, but that their own accounts suggest that their processes of integration were not seamless. As it was told to the Second Irish Grants Committee, flight from Ireland frequently involved periods of se- separation from loved ones, shattered mental health, property stolen, damaged uh, property, uh, or property sold at a loss, struggles to find suitable work and accommodation, and, and a general loss of status. Uh, and many of those claiming address unsurprisingly equated leaving Ireland with the disappearance of good prospects or comfortable standards of living. Jonathan Darby, for instance, noted that he and his wife had lost all the comfort and amenities of the home they'd built up during a period of over 40 years. Abraham Good was doing a good practice, as it was described, as a vet in Bantry before he left for South Wales, where his new practice was heavily in debt and made only the bare expense of living. He owed his brother £250. Uh, Silver, which was very heavily implicated in the creation and operation of the Grants Committee, uh, drew naturally on these narratives in its own lobbying work. A pamphlet entitled Victims of the Suspension of the Law in Southern Ireland highlighted the case of a young man with a good and rapidly expanding business in Cork. When the massacre of Protestants took place there, he managed to escape, but had to abandon his house, shop, general store or goods valued at a large amount. He was for a long time in a state of absolute penury and asked to start all over again, having lost all his capital. And Silver tend to talk about how their help has allowed these people to become, once again, contributing uh, members of, of British society. 
Uh, landed elites had mixed fortunes in maintaining standards of living, uh, often left as they were awaiting long periods on large and ultimately, in their eyes, unsatisfactory sums of compensation. Uh, Louise Uniac left the, the burned Mount Uniac estate in Cork for Devon and claimed by 1926 that she was, in reality, insolvent, reduced to the position of a refugee. And it's a reading that she says that it was her financial position that prompted this designation rather than, than anything else. But the extent of suffering was relative and personal. Uh, a divisional commissioner, Moore of the RIC, for example, insisted that his yearly allowance of £600, which is about €35,000 today, would mean that I'll have to either deny my children their education or my wife and my, myself will have to live in a hovel. Former assistant superintendent of the General Post Office in Cork, Walter Hales, had to, as he put it, keep a woman to look after his house in Surrey on to his wife's delicate health and found it difficult to make ends meet with his small pension of £183. But for Catholic ex-constable, uh, sorry, see constable Martin McLaughlin, it was, in his words, impossible to live in any fair way in England on his £45, 4 shillings and sixpence per annum. So there's, there are scales here in, 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 in terms of experience and, and suffering. Irish Grants Committee applicants, even recognising all of the issues the files raise as sources, are important as self-defined victims of forced migration. At the same time, though, compensation claims, propaganda pamphlets and press reports on violence, intimidation and victimisation can very easily combine to skew the picture. And I might touch on something Anna said as well in this. Uh, this is in part because compensation claims are naturally open to what might kindly be described as exaggeration or embellishment. The committee's own interrogation of applications is evidence of this in its own right. And these are people who are complaining, they are demanding redress uh, for a perceived wrong. Equally, those, uh, <coughs> sorry, I should say, the class is also another category of analysis that needs further thought in, in this context. Um, even those who applied for compensation um, had both the means to submit a claim in the first place and also the means to leave, uh, which is not always an option available to everyone who might have liked it. And equally, those who emigrate for whatever reason and do just fine, those who would rather not drag up the past by seeking redress, or those who never felt the need to do so in the first place, are very easily obscured. Uh, nor should we lose sight of those who resisted, ignored, or never considered the exodus by staying where they were. So I might offer to help Anne in her history of indifference and everything that she gets around to. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Brian. Our next speaker really needs no introduction, as neither did our previous two. Um, we all know him, uh, particularly for his writings on the big house. Uh, Professor Terence Dooley is director of the Centre for, for the Study of Historic Irish Houses and Estates in the History Department at Maynooth University. And his latest book is The Irish Revolution, 1912-23, on Monaghan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And, of course, allow me to begin, as everybody else has done, first of all, thanking Dr. Walsh and Dr. Wallace for the invitation to speak at this wonderful seminar. And of course, to extend my congratulations to Professor Fitzpatrick, whose hugely impressive corpus of work has been so influential over the last 40 years or so, and no doubt will continue to be for decades to come. Indeed, this paper itself would clearly show some evidence of that influence. 
memory serves me right, I think it was probably reference in the book to Callaghan Westrop and his notes on the defence of Irish country houses that may have brought me to this subject in the first place. And I was back in the uh, 1990s and I was preparing a PhD at the time on the uh, decline of the big house in Ireland. And I compiled a database of country houses burned in the 26 county area and came up with a figure of 275, very dangerously a figure of 199 for the, war, for the Civil War. Um, but that figure was recently challenged by Professor James S. Donnelly Jr., who in an article said that I had understated the real total and that the undercounting was most serious for County Cork, where he concluded close to 50 big houses and suburban villas were burned. But of course, the design of the big house was a study of the country residence of Irish landlords. Thus, my audit was never intended to include suburban villas as enumerated by Professor Donnelly, such as Dunsland, the palatial Glanmire residence of Joseph Pike, chairman of the Cork Steamship Company, or Frankfurt House on Montanot Hill, the home of Sir Alfred Dobbin, owner of Cross and Blackwell, and so on. So clearly what Professor Donnelly has enumerated are what might be better termed historic houses as opposed to big houses. Nevertheless, he has highlighted the fact that homes of Protestant, merchant, unionists or loyalists were liable to arson attacks as well, and that's an avenue worthy of investigation in its own right. I'm also happy to accept that my original estimate needs revision now in the light of all the sources that have become available since the 1990s. And I am indeed in the process of creating a new database, one slightly more sophisticated than large sheets of white paper pinned to a dining room wall, much to the nines of my wife back in the uh, early days. Um, but that database in itself has begun to throw up questions that I wouldn't have anticipated before, um, particularly because now of the digitization of local newspapers and so on. Questions, for example, about the length of time houses had been abandoned before they were actually born. Or, in fact, houses that were sold almost prior, directly prior to their actual burning. Um, so, I mean, this is, this, this is you know, an added dimension to uh, the actual complexities the, of the issues involved. Um, now, the, not only the existence of, or the creation of a new database, um, uh, also, and the existence of new sources, but also the local studies, or very important local studies, carried out recently by Jean Young and Loud, Kiran Riley and Awfully, Anne Weirden, East Galway, Janet Clark and some of the southern counties and so on. All of these have appeared and they have reinvigorated my interest in the topic. So I am at present preparing a monograph. When it will be finished is another matter completely. But besides the geography um, of destruction, I'm more interested now in certain other aspects, such as, for example, looting. Uh, not just looting of the houses, but indeed looting of the, the gardens and so on. I'm interested in the movement of artefacts, um, where they end up. Uh, or what they were used for, uh, in some cases being laundered for the uh, uh, Republican uh, cause later on. I'm interested in the losses to a family of a family home. Uh, my original title was uh, a quotation from the Castle Chain, the Lucas Goodemore family of Castle Chain, is everything we lost gone forever, 
which clearly indicates that you know when you look at it from the perspective of a family home, it sheds a, a new light uh, altogether. And also the loss to a community, particularly a community that where there may have been a number of families, a good number of families for that matter, uh, implied in a country house. I also want to take a look at how the fate of the Irish aristocracy compared with other European nobilities during revolution around this time. And going back to what Anne was saying about, you know, why the experience was much less violent than it would have been across the rest of Europe. Um, to date, it probably has been the reasons for burnings which has caused most debate, and we can undoubtedly continue to do so. And I'd like to think that I'm a little bit more intellectually sophisticated than when I published The Decline of the House back in 2001. And I've certainly moved away beyond accepting the one-line police report or the newspaper report that ascribed the motivation to no other reason than, for example, the reprisal for the summary execution of Republicans during the Civil War. Now, high levels of forensic investigation are not possible for every house, but if the social, economic, political and agrarian circumstances in a locality, both at the time of the burning and the historical past, can be explored, a much better understanding of complex and often interlocking reasons that came together at a point in time can be elucidated. So let me try to explain the reference to just one case study. Now, if juice fines taken the county as a problematic unit of analysis, uh, I'm going to really irk them now by taking one house within, <laughs> within, within one county. Um, and the house that I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a look at is Tubber Daly, near Road in County Offaly, which belonged to Edward John Bowman Nesbitt. And once the focal point of an estate of around 8,000 acres or so, the bulk of it had been sold under the 1903 Wyndham Land But Nesbitt had retained some hundreds of domain and untended lands to continue as a progressive farmer and a nationally renowned breeder of an Aberdeen Angus hare. And in the years leading up to the revolutionary period, it would seem that very good social relations had traditionally existed between Nesbitt and the local community, even where and when they were divided by politics. But crucially, Nesbitt provided a good deal of local employment on the domain farm, the gardens, the timber mill, and so on. So when his house was burned in August 1923, the nationalist editor, editor of the Leinster Leader wrote, Widespread sympathy is felt for Mr. Bowman Nesbitt for the great loss that he has sustained. He had worked very hard to ameliorate the conditions of the people around him, took the deepest interest in their works and doings, and so on. One of Nesbitt, Nesbitt's sons, Major General Frederick Bowman Nesbitt, later recalled his childhood at Tubber Daly. No one could have known a happier or more attractive place in which to grow up. He couldn't remember, he said, a single incident during my boyhood when hostility was shown either to myself or a member of my family, at least not until the outbreak of Easter week 1916. And it wasn't Easter week, of course, per se. That was, that was merely the site of memory. It was, however, during the turbulent years that followed. In 1919, influenced by the rise of labour in the area, the Tupper Daily domain workers went on strike for about four months. And it ended when Nesbitt dismissed three men, including Christopher Jones, a labourer, whose father had been the estate carpenter, and Matthew Gerrithy, the sawyer, 
whose brother was also employed by Nesbitt. Nesbitt himself identified Jones to the authorities as the ringleader. Jones himself was no milksop. Following his dismissal, he retaliated by taking possession of one of Nesbitt's domain cottages and he began to illegally graze his cows on the land. And in May 1921, Nesbitt got a decree for the possession of the house, but, as he put it himself, owing to the state of the country, he was unable to enforce it. Now, it may be something of a coincidence, or it may have been in anticipation of things to come. But on the very day the Anglo-Irish truce was called, the 11th of July 1921, Nesbitt's Scottish estate steward, Lewis Fraser, was attacked in his home and eventually forced to flee the area. And a couple of weeks later, his successor, Macmullen, began to receive threatening letters ordering him out of Tuberdale. Again, Jones was seen to be the chief suspect. At one stage, Macmullen called all the employees together uh, and instructed them to drive Jones's cattle off the domain or otherwise they might lose their jobs. Most complied, but it seems there was a cohort of around seven who didn't, including James Garrity whose brother Matthew had been earlier dismissed with Jones. And that night, a group of men, estimated at around seven, called McMullen's house, dragged him out, put him on his knees, and threatened to shoot him. McMullen could identify five of them. But he didn't name Jones, but he did claim that the raiders had worked on Jones's behalf. I don't know yet what role Jones played in the War of Independence. I made inquiries and I'm told that he did make application for an IRA pension. First time around he was refused, second time he was accepted, but his file hasn't yet been made available. And even when it is, I'd be inclined to take it with a good deal of scepticism. He did, however, take the anti-treaty side in the Civil War. When he died in June 1964, his obituary in the Irish press stated that he was a member of a flying column until October 1922, when he was arrested and imprisoned for 18 months, which would have meant up to around April 1924. As we, should, as we see, this couldn't have been the case. On the morning of the 15th of April 1923, around 2am or so, Tupper Daly was burned by a gang of men using bombs and paraffin, thus the sobriquet Paraffin Patriots. So, the burning takes place after three years of local agrarian unrest in the midst of civil unrest. Jones and his followers, including the Garrities, have been occupying the main buildings and lands. Two successive stewards have been intimidated, threatened with murder, and eventually driven away from Tuberdaley. Nesbitt himself has taken up residence in London, and in May he began to receive letters which he brought to the attention of the colonial office for the consideration of the Free State Government. One of these was from Joan. Sir, this is the fourth letter I wrote you. Got no reply about the farm. I have my case entered this two years. I expect you have a letter from IRA headquarters. I'm going to cut the meadows. I have no other means. I'll pay you for grass and clear you of all debts. I'm willing to buy the farm honestly, as no one else will be allowed to do so. <laughs> so Jones was therefore using the threat of the IRA and the menacing promise of used in rural Ireland that anyone who would bid on the lands Jones now occupied would be punished. There were other houses, house warnings in Offaly at this time, and the editor of the Midland Tribune rather revealingly concluded 
So burnings in Offaly are not a matter to boast of. Land hunger and not the Gaelic state or republic was the motive of a good many of them. Now, in a recent review of my piece in the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, Dr. Philip McConway, I'm glad to see here today, um, paid particular attention to my piece um, and contended that in apportioning blame for the burning of Tupper Daly, I was guilty of circumventing pertinent external military factors and that it was seasoned IRA outsiders acting on orders of Liam Lynch and in response to executions under the Public Safety Act who coordinated arson attacks on houses in North Offaly. Not, he contended, opportunistic and avaricious locals. Yes, there was a major spike in big house burnings after Lynch's order. 50% of all houses burned during the Civil War were burned in January to March 1923. We're going to be foolish to think that these were all as reprisals. Now, Dr. McConway would use a local example uh, contending that Tuberdaly was born as a reprisal for the execution of two local IRA men, Patrick Geraghty, and as far as I'm aware, no relation of the Geraghty's already mentioned, and Joseph Bourne, which took place on the 27th of January 1923. For sure, reprisal burnings for these executions had been carried out. When Palmerston House in Kildare was burned at the end of January, the raiders told Lord Mayo it was for the execution of Geraghty and others. The Leinster leader on the Tour de March reported on the burning of Green Hills in Offaly, describing how the leader announced that they were Republicans who had come to burn the house as a reprisal for the execution of Patrick Geraghty. But Tupper Daly was burned almost three months after the executions. Now, does this mean it was a late thought, or was there more to it? We can't easily dismiss Republican involvement, evidently not, if Jones was an irregular. But was Jones primarily a patriot or a mercenary agrarian agitator? Nesbitt's letters to the Colonial Office were brought to the attention of the Minister for Agriculture, Patrick Hogan. And this is where the local now begins to merge like with, the, with the national. Hogan... Sorry, to, to Hogan, and accompanied by a report from the local civic guard that read, the campaign was originated with a view to terrorising Mr Nesbitt and his employees and ultimately to succeed by such methods to have the ranch divided up and distributed. In a later report of January 1924, Superintendent Coogan was in no doubt but that Jones was, and I quote, a thoroughly lawless scoundrel and his family being connected with the irregulars he would get a certain amount of assistance from that section of the people in the locality. And at the very time of the burning of Tuberdaly, Hogan and the Minister for Home Affairs, Kevin O'Higgins, were in the process of framing the 1923 land bill. To Hogan, Daly, when he heard about it, was, and I quote, a particularly bad case. Mr Nesbitt is a very useful man, a first-class farmer, and employs a very large number of labourers, and he has done a lot of work for livestock in this country. O'Higgins would go on, of course, to make a speech in the Oireachtas on the 28th of May, where he would say, any persons who go out in defiance of the law or in defiance of the Parliament to press their claims by their own violence and their own illegalities be placed definitely outside the benefits of this bill. Therefore, the threat being 
that if they continue to involve themselves in agrarian agitation at local level, they wouldn't benefit from any farm divides and so on that would come up in the future. So in July, Hogan then wrote to O'Higgins, Jones is the principal cause of the trouble down there and he should be arrested at once. Could you have that arranged? Jones was subsequently charged at Tullamore in July 1923 with being in illegal possession of a farm land and he was remanded in custody to Tullamore District's court session on the 3rd of August. Now remember that his obituary would later claim that he was in prison at this stage for his patriotic endeavours. A week later, the 1923 land that came into being and almost simultaneously a new public safety act that was intended, in part at least, to curb the activities of fellows like Jones. Now I obviously have still gaps to fill in, but in 1925 the Irish Land Commission compulsively acquired Tubber Daly Domain and surrounding untended lands under the 1923 Land Act, which it was entitled to do um, in order to alleviate congestion in an area. And they paid Nesbitt £10,200 in 4.5% land bonds. Meanwhile, Nesbitt had claimed £35,000 for the burning of the house, and he was awarded £8,100. Again, fairly average. He wrote to a friend, In the face of all the opposition, it isn't worthwhile to try to build any other houses, and there's nobody there to look after my interests in the least. And if I started to rebuild or build anything new, I should just be robbed. I've had my innings and I'm out now. And if I can help any decent man get a living out of the wreck, that's all I care about. When the domain was eventually divided into lots of various size, amongst those who got farms were Christopher Jones and his closest friend and ally, James Garrity. Garrity also received an impressive house in the Tuberdaly Yard complex. So whether illegal or not, it seems that possession proved to be nine-tenths of the law when the Irish Land Commission came to make up or make the, the, the division. That sounds very awkward, but anyway. Um, of course, now, both men could have legitimately claimed the right to a farm under the 1923 Land Act because they were disemployed estate um, uh, workers, right? So, anyway, in conclusion, I think it's legitimate to argue that Christopher Jones and James Garrity were young men who decided to take advantage of the times to improve their status in life, which in truth was probably what most young IRA men had hoped the War of Independence and, if necessary, the Civil War would do for them. Tupper Daly illustrates something of a mercenary aspect adopted by some. There's no reason to see that as casting aspersions on those members of the IRA who were more than mere patriot, or sorry, paraffin patriot. But we have to accept that there were plenty of people as interested in their own social and economic gain as the attainment of a republic. <coughs> um, this paper is a bit like one of those Hollywood movies that you have two endings to it and you're not quite sure which one you're going to use, right? So I'm going to use the two of them um, for a very simple reason. One, the gaps that need to be filled in this story and many, many, many other stories cannot be filled as long as the government doesn't do something 
about forcing the Irish Land Commission to open up its records to bona fide research. That's number one. Number two, it's, as a lot of us, a lot of us know in this room, very uh, contentious to use information taken from people who are now dead. And uh, this is what I'm going to do, what I'm going to, gosh, I'm sorry, what I'm going to do now. Uh, the photograph you see here, I knew the bride uh, very, very well. And the Peaky Blinder character uh, in the back, with his head well down, um, is a man called Willie Geraghty. And Willie inherited the Geraghty lands from those who had been given it in 1923. Willie died a bachelor, and in turn, the land passed to this man. Uh, his name is Tommy Phelan, or Phelan. Tommy was a brother of the bride. And at her funeral, at her wake back in 1990, long before I started to write about the burning of country houses, Tommy and I spoke about where he lived and what he did and all the rest. And we came to Tubber Daly. And he told me, or he began to tell me the story about Tubber Daly itself. And he concluded, excuse the language, we burned the bastards out. And he said it with a good deal of fairness, right? And that, in turn, was echoed by his son, who was around about the same age as I was at the time. I was born in the 1960s, so therefore about 40 years after the event itself. So, what did the burning of a country house mean to these men? Well, certainly not the destruction of a national monument of any architectural significance or importance. Thanks very much.